namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami So we can welcome Ajahn Dham to this ceremony there. nice to have a new bhikkhu with us in our small community. And I had a chance to show Ajahn Dham around the monastery. And I, as I was saying at lunchtime, it was really delightful at how well cared for the paths were all nicely streamed and the attic was nice and neat and the workshop was neat. and. Uh, a very good feeling that people are appreciating the place and, and taking care of it and working working hard as a community to make it um, mindful, really. Just seeing seeing a place well cared for and encourages me to be more mindful, more careful in the spaces that I occupy. So this is this is a very good sign of a of a community which is not just uh, self oriented but has a sense of all of us participating in this special place. We're very, very fortunate, I think, that we have the, the good karma to be contemplatives. Not everyone is. And that we have a place to uh, deepen our contemplative practices as, as community. And that, that way of caring for each other by just doing our duties, taking care of our spaces, is very, very helpful, very encouraging. And one always hears about students getting a, uh, a room together, three, three young students and always arguing about who's going to do the dishes. That's a sort of cliché in our culture, but it's true that when, when uh, there is a sense of shared responsibility, there's a kind of maturity there, isn't there? They kind of don't need to be told and just see what needs to be done. That's a kind of mature mind, and, and that kind of mature mind, uh, um, I think, has a better shot at uh, the contemplative life, meditative life, because there is a sense of participating uh, in a way which isn't just self-aggrandizing, it isn't just getting something for myself all the time, but it's rather having a sense of generosity, uh, sensitivity to others, um, mature responsibility in, in whatever work we're asked to do. And these qualities, they make a difference in our meditation, they really do. Because if, 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 uh, if life, if, content, if monastic life is a self-ungrandizing thing, I just want to do my practice, it's a very um, unhappy way to live. So generosity, sensitivity to others, these, these uh, are a foundation of the heart which help in those times we're doing silent sitting or we're just on our own. So I, I, I really compliment the community for, for your uh, diligence, for your diligence and maturity. As the abbot and senior monk, um, obviously I want to show off. <laughs> so Ajahn Dham comes from Thailand and, you know, and he, you know, he'll talk with people in Thailand. And as I was saying at lunchtime, the... Mokhachai would say, if you want to see a good monastery, check out the toilets. And if the toilets are clean, you know, there's probably a lot of mindfulness practice there, so... 
It's very nice for my ego, I suppose. <laughs> so this is good. This is good. This is encouraging. Our attention, we, we have a certain amount of um, energy and, and mental space. and We can pay attention to, to, to certain things. So some of our attention has to be on functional things. Um, how many cups of rice do you need to cook for this number of people? And, uh, is there gas in the strimmer? And um, who's going to take the recycling out down the road and so on? So there's, there's a certain amount of our mental energy is taken up with just the functional part of life, the natural doing of life. A certain amount of time is spent in just sort of dealing with our emotions, you know, our, our disappointments or our aversions or passions. It's, that can take up a, 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 lot of, a lot of space, a lot of inner space. Um, but in a, in a contemplative life, what's important is that we learn and will we all do this, and just a reminder really, that we um, invest a certain amount of inner time, uh, a certain proportion of our mental space uh, to the contemplation of life as, as a process by using the Buddhist teachings. So there's the functional, conventional part of me being a senior monk and having my, my duties and my particular bodily karma now that I'm 68, so I deal with that, so I travel and so on. But within that, within that conventional framework of being a human being among other human beings, there's also a kind of background uh, consideration all the time, isn't there? And that background consideration is seeing the flow of life in terms of Buddha Dharma, seeing the events of my life, not just in terms of me going to the airport and going through security and being met uh, here uh, in Ottawa or driving in a car from New Hampshire to Washington, not just those functional things, but also just that inner flow of liking and disliking of being disappointed, or being bored, or being excited, uh, or being curious, of, of um, not wanting to be here or wanting to be here. That, that inner, inner um, flow of life, which is, is, is very personal, but we want to sort of get out of the, the sense of it being personal to just the flow of nature. And that's what the perceptions of Dharma are, are, are trying to encourage us to do. So there might be the the personal feeling, like as I was saying, when I was in the National Gallery in Washington, the feeling of it was what, like it was the third of July, so there are a lot of people. So the feeling was very um, distracting, to say the least. Lots of lots of people, um, and I wanted to to see this one particular exhibit. So that that's like my personal feeling here is oh, it's really crowded here. Why there's so many people? I shouldn't have come. That kind of but then as Dharma, I can see, oh, this is, this is the feeling of confusion, or this is the feeling of congestion, or this is the feeling of claustrophobia, 
or as if, if it was a negative experience. And that, that kind of background possibility is something that we need to be doing all the time, and we are, otherwise we wouldn't be here. And that, I think, is what the contemplative life is about. It's not just the immediate experience and reaction to the immediate experience, but it's this, this kind of um, second, like, it's not like multitasking. Not only am I um, going through the, like the security going through into Washington Airport was very, there's a very long queue, really, really long queue. So there's not only negotiating that and all that, but there's also the inner feelings of, oh, will I get through? And will I miss the plane? And um, as it was, I got to the plane, everyone was on board, and I just walked out and took off. But the, the feeling of, of being you know, slightly anxious or not sure, that's all, we're, we're doing that all the time. So it's a kind of background um, second level of, of attention, isn't it? And a person who doesn't have that, seems, to me it seems everyone must have a bit of that. Otherwise I think you go crazy because the mind would just be reactive all the time. But we're trying to really hone that that contemplative uh, capacity. And then we, the way we hone that, and the way we sharpen that is we take teaching, what is teaching, and we use, we use uh, the ideas in that teaching to guide and focus our, our attention, to give our attention a perspective which the Buddha suggests is if you, if you look at those inner workings, that movement of consciousness, uh, that movement of, of the khandhas in this particular perspective, if you look at it that way and you continue working that way, it will lead to your peace. It will be helpful for you understanding life in a certain way. Because you can look at life in all kinds of ways. You can look at your inner world in all kinds of ways. But the reason we have uh, this teaching is because it's saying, look at it this way. Now that is not just taking a, an opinion about our inner world. It's actually using intellect as the tool to look at life and see life in a particular way. And that so the intellect is the is the servant to insight. The intellect isn't the ultimate. Because if intellect was the ultimate in that sense of ideas and opinions, then we'd be limited just by views and opinions. And, and views and opinions, as we all know, are, are okay, but if they're not deepened with insight, they don't really liberate. They just leave you at an intellectual level. Whereas, whereas insight is something at a much deeper level, and it frees the mind from attachment. Insight frees the mind from attachment, liberates the mind from attachment, because it's seen, oh yeah, this is, the, this, is, this is where I create problems. This is where my suffering arises. And so the, the different perspectives that we have, they're like... They're like avenues of looking at things, their perspectives, their their um, um, perceptions, and this is the I think the great genius of this teaching for me is that it it uses our our kind of cognitive abilities, it uses our 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 natural um, capacity to perceive things. He uses that and encourages certain perceptions. Use these perceptions a lot. Keep looking at life in this way. Keep that perception strong in your mind. And you'll find that that leads to peace. So the perceptions of change, 
the three characteristics, uh, four noble truths, and different teachings that we have. And one of the very important perceptions to try to continually bring forth uh, in in the way we look at life, perceive life, is to is the ideas around dependent origination. And dependent origination, we, we hear this a lot. And again, intellectually, you can. When I when I first came across this in, in India many years ago, I had a very complex uh, commentary on that. It was very difficult for me intellectually to try to get my head around it. It was a good exercise intellectually. Um, it was through through the notes of, of Jnanavira Tara. Anyway, so it was a good exercise intellectually, and I, and I and I thought I understood it, and I could see myself getting conceited because I thought I understood it. So now I know. Now I have the idea. And what I didn't see then, what you see now, is it's not a position I take, a Buddhist position as opposed to a Christian position or a atheist or whatever kind of position. It's not like just intellectually holding. A position. It's rather using uh, a perception as a way of looking at life, and this is constant. And this is what we mean: the practice of dhamma, rather than uh, dhamma just being a, a position that I take. And that's, I think, what the contemplative life is about. And I like the word contemplation because meditation has a certain, has a certain, for me, a certain baggage to it. Uh, so it's contemplation. So the contemplation to me is the aliveness of our continual life form. Uh, it's the continual engagement with all the, um, the particulars of our life in a dharmic way. Not that meditation isn't, but, but I, I like I like the word contemplation, and then that's the way I, I like to use it. Some other would people might not use it that way. So contemplation isn't just thinking all the time. It's like, a, but observing, oh yeah, yeah, I see what the Buddha means. Yeah, I see, I see that, oh yeah, 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 okay. So you're seeing something, it's like bird watching more. You know, you, 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 someone, someone, I was, I was uh, saying to Daryl, like, sparrows. Sparrows are quite hard to identify, because they're just little brown jobbies. But, you know, you, you look at your birding book, and someone tells you, well, look at, look at the head, or whatever. And you look at the birding book, and the birding book is indicating arrows. Well, the difference is uh, around the back of the head, or the difference is the color of the beak, or the difference is at the top of the head from other. And so you read the book, and then you look at the birds, you look at the book, and oh, they all look the same. And all of a sudden, oh, yeah, there's that bit of white around the eyes, which this one doesn't have. There's a, there's a different coloring. And all of a sudden, it becomes obvious. Oh, yeah. And that's a chipping sparrow, and that's a song sparrow. All of a sudden, it becomes very, very obvious. So before that, um, it wasn't obvious. They all kind of, all kind of gray little guys moving around. And that's that's fun to do that. It's interesting to do that. Um, but what happens to the mind? Then it becomes more attentive to that particular form of natural life, avian life. So in the same way. Um, taking taking the teaching and and seeing that going on in in consciousness, seeing that happen in consciousness, different than having an opinion, isn't it? You see, and so dependent origination is a very simple idea, and we re-emphasize it a lot. And it's simply that 
this being that comes to be with this there is that this not being that does not come to be without this there is not that simple causality uh, switch on this being coolness of fan that comes to be switch not on coolness of fan doesn't come to be very simple okay and that's a that's a that's a fundamental causal structure in all nature it's not a Buddhist invention it's just very, very obvious this being that comes to be with this there's that this not being that does not come to be without this there's not that okay and we use that in Buddhism to challenge the sense of self that's what we we, we, we use that perception just to apply that perception as an alternative way from this insidious tendency towards self-view. Uh, say, for instance, so uh, uh, the, and, and you're trying to do this all the time, trying to get that perception running more than the self-perception. So I was in the in the northwest field of the monastery outside the Bhikkhu Vihar, uh, watering the uh, the trees just now. And three does and two fawns came, and the fawns were chasing each other back and forth along the field, just absolutely delightful. Just, just, you know, these guys are running back and forth, back and forth, totally ignoring me, and it was absolutely delightful. This being that comes to be. Fawns running across the field, what comes to be is delight. This not being, that does not come to be. So the fawns were gone. The dough's left. There's a memory, but that's not there. This being that comes to be. Five minutes later, deer fly bites me in the head. Right? Annoyance. Or unpleasant. This being that comes to be. With this, there's that. This not being, it does not come to be. Now, if one begins to really work with that perception and really employ it a lot. And that's what you have to do in, 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 in Dharma practice. You have to employ these perceptions constantly so that your, 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 your viewpoint is more and more in line with the Buddha's ideas of right understanding. So, so what happens if you Im- employ that in very simple ways? And it sounds, oh, it's kind of um, a bit, bit of a drag, isn't it? You're always analyzing. But you're not. You're not analyzing things. You're just seeing there in this flow of life Causality, causality. And then, uh, as you do this, maybe um, uh, you get uh, uh, some kind of a disappointment. Someone makes a joke about you. You know, kind of, sometimes our speech is not very strong. You know, we start to poke each other, maybe, with speech, right? And then someone pokes a bit too far, and uh, it's a bit of an off-color insult. And so... This being that comes to be. Well, what comes to be is a sense of resentment. Now, now the resentment is different than just the delight for the fawn because the resentment then very easily has self-view in it. How could he do that? That's so cruel. Or, uh, I'm just not, never going to talk to him again or something absurd like that. So, so now self-view arises. But actually, because you're observing causality, you say, oh, this being, that comes to be. You see that the sense of a self now, a, a, a hurt self, is actually also just a configuration 
which is like a little drama that comes up. This being that comes to be. With this, there is that. And if you're if you stay with that perception, you stay with that perception, and you don't invest a lot of thought in the self view, then that sense of resentment ceases. And then you see, oh, without thinking about this, that sense of self is not there anymore. And you see non-resentment. You see the mind empty of resentment. But then, 30 seconds later, you look at the guy, and there's a memory. The memory comes up again. This being, and you have the resentment again. That comes to be. And then you just pay attention to causality, and you don't proliferate with thought, you just say, well, that's just that. That's just one scenario, that sense of self. And then it ceases because you're not thinking about it. And you see the sense of self is actually simply a pattern of thought with some emotional baggage in it. And you begin to have that perspective, oh, actually, that's not who I really am. That's simply a drama that comes and goes, comes and goes, comes and goes. And you begin to abide more as that knowing of in this case, change or, or dependent origination, you can say, well, that's actually quite peaceful. Even within resentment. Even resentment. The resentment comes up again, and then, or, or if it's a really, really um, difficult, difficult encounter, it wasn't just a, a, a comment, it was really a slashing remark that the person set you up for, then it could be very strong. It could be like, you know, like... Uh, a lack of forgiveness, or, or wanting revenge, or, or feeling really, um, what's the word, uh, betrayed, really strongly. And then, well, those are stronger things. And the sense of self has even a stronger um, manifestation, and lasts longer. So you have to really practice. And you see, the memory comes up of, of some kind of betrayal, and there's a sense of self. It's all one thing. Oh yeah, with this being, that kind of sense of self comes up. And then you don't add to it with thought, and you see the end. Oh, there's none, none. And then you don't get caught, like you get very much caught. Oh, I should, I should, I should forgive this person. I really should forgive him. That's another sense of self. So you start to get very complicated. You get the insult, then you get the resentment, then the resentment comes up again, and then you get another sense of self saying, I should forgive, I should forgive, I shouldn't be so, I shouldn't be... And it never ends. It never ends. Because it's all predicated on the sense of I. I am this person who has these problems, and there's that person, and they did that to me, and it's ad nauseum, ad infinitum, suffering. But in any given moment, there is this possibility, oh, well, this being that comes to be. This, with this, there's that. That's. And you begin to see the importance of thought. Right thought, wrong thought. Now, right thinking would be more in line of dependent origination in this case. There's all kinds of ways you can look at this. But in this case, you begin to have a a sense of perspective that is non-attached. Because when you can do that, when you can see that the feeling of resentment is just resentment, just that way, uh, it has no power to delude because it's just known, dependent on this. And then, so what's very important there is to notice the cessation of that. And not cessation that it never comes back, but more like it is just a, it's just a, it's a shimmer kind of thing. It just comes up, and if you don't add to it with thought, it's not there. There might be an emotional feeling in the body, okay, that's there. So thought's very important here. Uh, this being that comes to be, that's thinking. But now that thinking is creating a certain perspective, 
They have to do this a lot. It, it doesn't just like you see, an opinion doesn't do this. Like believing in independent origination or agreeing with it, it doesn't really. It's not a doing, is it? An opinion is not a doing. A position is not a doing. Which contemplation is a doing. You know, it's a constant engagement uh, intellectually with life, but not just intellectually, more insightfully. And when you apply these suggested perceptions and, and perspectives and viewpoints that the Buddha is recommending to us, and the teachers are recommending to us, uh, you begin to see like the Buddha. Uh, when the Buddha says, when you, when you see the Dhamma, you see me. You begin to, you, your noticing is now in line with right understanding, with insight, and it's freeing. That's very, very freeing. And you can apply this to, you know, to like the teachings on Anicca. You know, the, the perception of change, it's the same, should lead to the same thing. The perception of anatta, the perception of dukkha. You know, these are, these are all really pointing to the non-attachment, or non-grasping of the khandas, where the freedom lies. If I may share the airport story, Peter. So I was in the airport, and um, I'm important. I'm airport important, and Peter was late. So what came up in my mind was, why is he late? Uh, annoyance, right? And then, no, annoyance feels the same. With this as condition, that arises. So I just kept focus on that, and then it ceased, and there's no annoyance. No annoyance and then I noticed that every time I looked around for Peter, the annoyance would come up. <laughs> This is a condition that arises. And then, then the thought wanted to go, well, did I give them the right date? Maybe I didn't give them the right date. Uh, with this is condition, doubt arises. Now, at some point, if it would have been two hours, I probably would have done something about it, but it wasn't the case. But, but that's just, I could argue, I could argue I shouldn't be annoyed, or I could blame Peter, I could go both ways, but no, it's just life. Life is that way. And to say, say, well, you know, in practice of 40 years, you shouldn't feel annoyance, but it's, no, it's this way. It feels this way now. This is condition that arises. So when I see it as dependent origination, it's not a personal problem. It's just, it's just the stuff of life. It comes and it goes, dependent cause and conditions. And as we say, it's good practice. It's good practice to stay really, really focused on something like that. Now, when we stay focused like that, that's a kind of samadhi, isn't it? That's a kind of attentiveness, a kind of gathering of the mind, uh, a presence of mind, uh, in a way which is in line with insight. Not just trying to tranquilize the mind and, and get rid of anything, or, or just get rid of tranquil states of mind, but it's being really attentive now to this. Because if I'm not attentive, there's going to be a price to pay. I either get lost in it and, 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 and dump something on poor old Peter, or, or dump something on myself and feel guilty and inadequate some kind of way. But but dependent is saying it's not you, Viridomo. It's not it's just life. It's just life is this way with this as condition that arises, this being that comes to be. And when we when we apply our attention through the Dharma, so perception of change, dependent origination, when we begin to really apply our attention, then the tendency for us to believe in the khandas to believe in dependent origination as any kind of a refuge, any kind of place of safety or fulfillment, begins to fall away. 
And that natural falling away of attachment and engagement with the five khandhas begins to be the peace of the mind of non-attachment. Not something that you have now manipulated to get for yourself or, or just created the right kind of conditions for peace to be there. But now peace is very natural because the mind is attending to life through the Dharma. And its capacity now to attend to the negative and not get caught up, attend to the positive and not get caught up, leads to peace. And so the classic formulation of dependent origination is around craving. And that's the, that's the formulation and structure which we're really asked to pay deep attention to. So with, um, with contact as condition, there's feeling, vedana, and vedana can be uh, attractive or unattractive. It can draw you or it can repel you. So the, the feeling of the fawns running across the, the field was attractive, and then the feeling of the um, uh, deer fly was unattractive. And that's Vedana, Dukkha Vedana, Sukha Vedana. You're drawn to, or you're pulled, you want to pull away from. That's just the polarity of all sense contact. So with contact as condition, there is feeling, Vedana. But with Vedana's condition, there's craving. This being, that comes to be. When there's this, there's that. Right? Now, craving arises because I want the pleasant, I don't want the unpleasant. It's very natural. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, if I was being attacked by uh, a load of wasps, I'd run into the vihara and get out of there and jump in a shower, whatever I had to do to get away from it. So Vedana and, and Tanha are not wrong. But... The investment in the khandas through craving and feeling is an investment which is very, gives very limited results. It doesn't lead to peace. It leads to comforts and excitements, but they, they're subject to change. This being that comes to be. So craving arises, uh, and then with craving as condition, what arises then attachment. Craving as condition, this being, that comes to be attachment grasping. And that's the, that's the nub of the problem. The grasping of the khandas because of craving. This is the Buddha said, this is where you really have to pay attention to the flow of your life experience. So we have to pay attention functionally so we don't cut our legs off when we use a chainsaw. But we also have to pay attention in this more deep way of this flow of life and then a contact, feeling, craving, attachment. And this, this grasping is both the fuel of suffering and its suffering. So like, um, so let's go back to that example of someone uh, cracking a, a, a cruel joke in hurting you uh, and, and the feeling comes up. So what happens? So the memory comes up, maybe you're back in your room and then you're sitting there, nothing's happening. All of a sudden the memory uh, of the of the poke of the of the cruelty hits you, so that's contact, memory, mental contact, right? So memory comes up, that's contact, and that contact memory has a feeling. It's unpleasant. It's unpleasant. Now the craving mind wants to get rid of the unpleasant. So what does it move? It moves into aversion. I'm going to get that guy. Well, that wasn't fair. It moves into aversion. Or embarrassment, whatever. It moves into aversion. 
And then if thought when it holds on to that aversion, and then there's the playing through of that. Oh, it's not fair. It's not right. Blah blah blah. And then there's the. Then if you're meditating, there's the discomfort of that resentment, and that's got a negative feeling to it. Craving comes up, and then you think, I shouldn't think like this. I have to stop thinking like this. I have to stop thinking like that. And it goes on and on and on. But if there is enough attention to notice memory as a condition, as an object, not you're not the subject of that, it's just a, an object of mind. Memory comes up. It's unpleasant. So this is an unpleasant memory. It feels this way. Now the craving, the, the, the letting go of craving, then is just bearing witness to the unpleasantness. And not going for the temptation of revenge or self-criticism or whatever. Just, oh, memory's this way. With memory as condition, what arises is an unpleasant feeling. This being, that comes to be. Without this, there's not that. So, because you've been practicing now dependent origination all the time, not just around anything, that perspective starts to play. That perspective, that way of, of looking at life begins to be a natural... Um, way of perceiving life because you've been doing it. It's just like the bird watching because I've been looking at bird books and looking at birds. The, the natural way for me to look at birds is to look at colors and shapes and so on because I've been doing it. Same with this. So, so you're, you're, you're in your room and, and you're meditating in your room and the memory comes up of being hurt. Now, if you're really attentive, well, it's just memory. It's just an object. And that memory has an unpleasant feeling. It's unpleasant. Unpleasant feels this way. You don't let it go anywhere. It's just this way. It feels unpleasant. You bear witness to it. You're patient with it. You're tempted to think something. No, no, don't go to thought. Don't go to thought. Just this unpleasantness feels this way. And you bear witness to it. And you see the sensation of, the cessation of the unpleasantness. Haven't created a self. It's just a drama that comes and goes. And you begin to have peace. Because you see the cessation of self the cessation of resentment, the cessation of negative habits, da-da-da-da-da. And it plays out in these little ways. Now you can see that that takes quite a sharp mind to see memory as memory rather than get all caught up with memory. To see memory as an object rather than believe that you are the subject of all those memories. That's, it, that's who you are. It takes quite a kind of a, a clarity of mind. And that's really you know, one of the things that samadhi is about. Some samadhis, that capacity to do that, to have enough focus and presence to actually not get caught by the khandhas, to see them as dependently originated, to see them as arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing. And what that takes you to, what that takes you to is more and more an abiding and, and a kind of consideration, well, what is not dependently originated? It has to be the consideration eventually. has to be. What is not dependently originated? And that is the ideas around Nibbana, the unconditioned. If you don't ever have that perspective, that there is the, the, uh, uh, that which is not dependently originated, uh, you only get half, half the points. <laughs> you still have a kind of good psychological base to work, but you don't really have a, a kind of uh, liberating insight. But that, that consideration, you take it further. Okay, if everything is dependently originated, what is not dependently originated? That's a very important consideration. Because that begins to lead to more and more letting go of anything which is dependent. You see, 
If it's dependently originated, it cannot be the unconditioned. It depends. And these are the ideas around dukkha. Dukkha lakana, or the characteristic of dukkha, is that if it began, it ended, it will end, and it can't be the unconditioned. So it's unsatisfactory. So happiness is unsatisfactory in this sense. It's not bad, it's not unhappiness, but unhappiness is still dependently originated. So don't make it a big deal. So the fawns run across the field, it's there's Sukhavedana. But it's still, Sukhavedana is still dependently originated. It's not freedom. It's not ultimate happiness. Right? And then the bug bites me. And then that, that's all. That's natural. Yeah, so it changes from Sukha to Dukkha. But what is not dependently originated? And that you can't really answer because if you give it a name you're already in an object, so you begin to just let go of all objects to see what is not dependently originated. And you intuit that the awareness of change is the gateway to that understanding. The awareness of dependent origination is the gateway to that understanding. And then you abide more and more in non-becoming, non-craving, non-aversion, non-anticipation, all those things that become very important. They're the kind of via negativa way that we talk about non-aversion, non-becoming, because there's nothing to get anymore, because anything you get in time is still dependently originated. It depends. Huh? So, so the, the insight around the three characteristics gets stronger and stronger with this. So it's not just a Nietzsche, but you see that all things which are dependent are dukkha. Not dukkha in the sense of unpleasant vedana, unpleasant sensation, but dukkha in a sense that cannot be the unconditioned. So there's a natural uh, disinclination to get too caught up with pleasure and excitement and beauty. It is as it is. But the tendency to seek yourself in beauty, in excitement, in pleasure, gets less and less and less because you realize, well, it's still dependent. And we've all seen that, haven't we? You know, some some situation which is very dependent, you think it's really great and then falls away. Over time, as we mature, the tendency to get too caught up and too excited just naturally falls away, doesn't it? Naturally, because, no, 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 I've been there. That doesn't really, really work. When we're young, you know, we're all excited and falling in love and and things like that. all seems great. And then we get burned a few times. And I say, well, actually, that's not such a great thing because it leads to its opposite. And so there's an interest then in the unconditioned, that which is not dependently originated. And I think this is the real interest in, in a contemplative path, not just psychological comfort and, and psychological balancing, but something much, much deeper, that which is not dependently originated, the unconditioned. All right, I'll leave that for reflection. Mm-hmm.